Okay, today uh, we're going to jump into our Bible study. There's a couple of things that I, I need to say. First of all, it's going to be somewhat of a fast-paced Bible study. There's uh, so much that needs to be said, and I'm not going to be able to say it all. So um, it's, uh, we, you know, we only have so much time. So some of this, I, 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 the big question for me each week is what do you leave in and what do you leave out? So uh, there's a little bit of that going on today. But also to let you know that we're going to look at a, a subject that is uh, considered somewhat controversial, and, and uh, uh, we're going to look at something that, that many of us have a view uh, more based upon the tradition that we come from rather than what the Bible actually says. We're going to look at what the Bible actually says, and, and at, at the end of it, we find that we don't really agree on this. I just want you to know that's okay. We, we don't have to agree on every little piece here, but, uh, but I'll, I'll share with you the perspective that I've come through, uh, come to and see if it, if it makes sense. But as we begin today in our study of 1 Corinthians, I, I want to say that this section all began with a meal, and I want to talk about the first meal. You'll remember the story that it was in the garden, the Garden of Eden, as God placed man there in the garden. He says, you can eat anything you want, do whatever you want, but there's this one tree that I don't want you to touch. It's not for you, doesn't belong to you, just don't eat from this tree. And uh, the first thing that we find man doing is going and eating from the tree. And when that took place, man found himself separated from God and uh, feeling a little bit naked, you might say. It was in that time that, that that one meal created the problem that you and I are still facing today. Well, it was in that situation that there was nothing that man could do to change his situation, but because of who God is, God stepped in and he took care of the situation. And there in your outline, notice it says from Genesis 3, it says, the Lord, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That is, he, he covered them, he fixed their problem, but they also noticed that in doing that, something died, but God did this on their behalf. So that first meal led to the problem. Now, um, that leads us to the second meal. The second meal we commonly refer to as the Passover. And you know the story. God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They were in a desperate, hopeless situation, and they needed somebody to save them. And so God says, here's how I'm going to do it. You're going to take a lamb. You're going to take that lamb, and that lamb's going to be killed. You're going to ultimately eat the lamb. That is, you're going to take the lamb inside of you. But then you're going to take the blood of the lamb, and you're going to place it on the doorpost. And as you read the account, as they would place that on the doorpost, it literally made the sign of the cross on the doorpost. And God said, tonight judgment is going to come. And when judgment comes, I'm going to look down, and those who have received what we would call the blood covering on the door, I'm going to pass over in judgment. There on your outline, notice it says in Exodus 12, the blood shall be a sign for you and on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will, and I want you to underline, pass over you. Therefore, it was called the Passover, where God passed over in judgment. Now, in that story, one of the things that we noticed, and we've talked about it a couple of times, when God passed over, it had nothing to do with the goodness of the people in the house. It only had to do with them receiving God's way to be saved, which was to accept the blood covering there in that situation on the house. So that first meal caused the problem that we face today. The second meal, the Passover, created the picture of the promise of what God would do in the future. 
The promise was that one day God would come to the earth as a man, and like that lamb that was slain, that was killed, God would stand in our place, and he would take that punishment that was for us. We would be saved, not because we are good, but because we took the blood covering, that is, we received that free gift. And uh, since that time, all the way back since Israel was in Egypt, they began to practice what is called the Passover. And they did that for 1,500 years in anticipation of what God would do. Well, that led to what we would call the third meal. Now, the third meal is something that we commonly refer to as believers as the Last Supper. You'll remember that Jesus, God comes to the earth as a man. Jesus is with his disciples. And uh, I've I've put the passage on your outline. I've condensed it a little bit. And uh, you'll you'll see why as we go, but at least you'll, you'll get the point. And it says, When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. Now I want you to underline the Passover, that was the meal, with you before I suffer. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, and I want you to underline the word thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. And again, I've condensed this a little bit. And when he had taken some bread and had given thanks, underline the thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And underline that. So we notice something that in the Passover, there were some other things more than just the lamb. There was the bread and there was the cup. And for 1,500 years, as the Jewish people celebrated Passover, they had this bread and they had the cup, but there wasn't really any explanation as to what that was all about. So here in the Last Supper, Jesus takes their elements and he holds it up and he says, this bread, he says, this bread is my body, this cup is my blood. And all of a sudden he tells them that he is the fulfillment. That's what all those elements meant. It was all about him. So that he would be the fulfillment of the Passover. Now the Passover led to the fourth meal. The fourth meal we commonly call communion. Unlike the Passover, which was in anticipation of what God would do, communion is now in remembrance of what God has already done. So Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. A verse that we saw a couple of weeks ago, I put it there in your outline from 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says there in your outline, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, underline that, of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And we talked about how the word communion means oneness, becoming one. We become one with Christ, and also that's used to become one with one another. So now the bread and the cup are now given to remember what it is that Jesus has done for us 2,000 years ago. Interesting, in communion, which is different than Passover, in communion there is no longer the annual or perpetual sacrifice of the lamb because that was done in what Christ did one time and so that element is now removed. Now there is the bread and the cup by which we remember that one sacrifice but there's not that perpetual sacrifice going forward. So since that time, churches around the world have been celebrating what we call communion. And In our passage uh, today, as we get into this, as we talk about communion there in Corinth, last week we highlighted that this section of 1 Corinthians talks about what takes place specifically in the church service. So we're going to talk about specifically what takes place in the church service. So we'll look at that as we travel through. In Corinth, the way that they 
practiced communion was very different than how we typically do it. In Corinth, they would have a large potluck dinner where everybody in the congregation would come together and they would share a meal. And at some point during that meal, they would all stop and they would then remember by taking the bread and the cup. And again, eating together was a way of saying that we are one. In essence, what goes into me is going into you. And so in that culture, that would be their way of saying we're all in unity, we're all one. The problem in Corinth was that some of the people in the church were very, very wealthy. And uh, some of the people in the church were servants and they were very, very poor. So if you were wealthy in that day, you didn't have to worry about when you could knock off of work, you just kind of showed up. So the wealthy people would show up for the church meeting. They would be early and they would bring the most food because they had it within their means to do that. On the other hand, those who would work as servants, they couldn't, they couldn't punch out early, so they had to wait till their job was done. And then they would show up, but they couldn't bring a whole lot. So they just brought what they had. So we're going to find that the wealthy are showing up early and they're eating all the food, drinking all the the wine, and eating all the bread. And when those who are poor show up, there's nothing left for them. That's the backdrop of everything that that we're going to talk about today. Paul hears about that, and he writes, and he responds to this. And uh, again, I'm going to share this in a way that you might not have heard before. And so let's, let's see where we wind up. In verse 17, he says, chapter 11, he says, but in giving this, you can just feel his emotion, but in giving this instruction, I I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. I love that because he says, you're getting together, but it's not a good thing. You're you're doing something terrible here. Verse 18, he says, for in the first place, um, just by by point of interest, when you go to Bible college or seminary and uh, you know, the people try to find who actually wrote the book, they look for styles of writing and they say, well, that's Paul who wrote this. One of the things that Paul does, and this won't change your life, it's just interesting, but uh, Paul always says throughout all of his letters, he goes, in the first place, and, and he never gives you the second place or the third place. It's like, <laughs> he just, just forgets to, to say, you know, to go to the next point. In the first place, they're like, there's no, there, there's no second place. So he says that. So he says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions. Now, most of your Bibles use the word divisions. Go ahead and, and underline that. Divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. In part, I believe it. So in, in that day, as the church would get together and they would share communion or have church services, they didn't have church buildings. So typically, those who were wealthy within the church, they would have a much larger house. It would have a courtyard, larger rooms, and so they would invite the church over to their house. So they would all gather there. But Paul says, but when you show up, there's divisions among you. And he goes, you know what? I believe it. And Paul says, I was your pastor. I remember what it was like there. I remember all the divisions, and I've heard about that. And as we've traveled through, we've seen some of those. They would say, I'm, I follow this pastor. I follow that pastor. I follow this one, that one. You had the charismatics against the non-charismatics. You had the organ people against the guitar people. You had the drum people against the no drum people. It was just mayhem. So anyways, they're all coming together. And Paul says, there's divisions. We're also going to see that there's a division between those who had and those who, who didn't have a whole lot. Verse 19, he says, for there must also be factions. Some of your Bibles say factions and some of your Bibles say heresies. Go ahead and underline it, however it says it. There must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So in that church, there were factions or heresies Factions, um, the, the, the idea, typically Christians, uh, you've probably noticed this, but Christians at times will disagree. 
And we tend to disagree over two things. One is theology, and the other thing is how we do things. You know, you change how you do something in a church, and that, that can, you know, freak some people out. So there's these factions there within the church. But sometimes, sometimes Christians disagree. And I, I love how he says in verse 19, I wish we had more time to talk about this, but he says, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. The idea is sometimes you have to have those divisions so the Lord can reveal what's truth, what's not. And sometimes you just have to say, you know, we disagree on this, but we just have to let the Lord work this out. Maybe God will bless both of us. Maybe, maybe he's just taking us in different directions, but let the Lord work that out. But we see that, factions. Verse 20 and 21, he says, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Go ahead and underline that. And he says it just like that. And here's why. Verse 21, for in your eating, one takes his own supper first, underline that, and then one is hungry and another is, what does your Bible say? Drunk. Okay, so that all of our Bibles are saying the same thing. So one is taking his own supper first. He's not really caring about those who you know, don't, don't have anything. One is hungry. One's had a little bit you know, too much. One didn't have any wine. One had a little too much wine and a little too much wine, maybe a fraction more. But it's a, you know, so he's drunk is the idea. And uh, so what hits me in this is that um, they, they, were, they were not drinking Welch's at church. Now, I was raised um, in my early days as a Baptist, Southern Baptist, wonderful heritage. But as I read this, it occurs to me that the early church were probably not Baptist. They sound more Lutheran to me. I'm not sure, but I don't don't think they were. So I, I might be reading into that too much, but that's just an observation. So... I love Paul's response, verse 22. Notice what he says. He says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat or drink? Or do you despise the church of God? Now, how are they despising the church of God? What is he so bugged about? Well, let's look at it. Do you despise the church of God and shame those who, and in my translation it says, have nothing. Go ahead and underline that. Have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. I love that. Paul isn't bothered that they're drinking wine. He's not bothered that it's real wine. He's not even bothered that they're drinking wine at church. What's bothering Paul here is that those who had plenty were drinking it all before those who didn't have a whole bunch got any. That's what's bothering Paul. Some are drinking too much wine and some don't have any at all. Nothing is left. And Paul says that's the big sin. Do you find that interesting? Yeah. So, uh, so, so we're going to call this number one on your outline, the perversion of the Lord's Supper. And uh, here's what we've seen so far, just as we've traveled through, we underlined some things. Uh, first of all, there's divisions there in verse 18. We saw that. Then there was heresies or factions. And, uh, and then in verse 21, there was selfishness. One's taking his own supper, but he doesn't really care about anybody else. And then in verse 21, one's drunk and there's none for anybody else. Verse uh, 19, I put in your outline. Some of your translations will, will say it like this. There must also be heresies among you that, would, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. And uh, so, so some of your translations say it that way. Paul says this is not how we are to come together as a church and take communion. Now I want you to skip down 
to the verse there on your outline from verse 20 and 21. It says, therefore, when you meet together, underline, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, is what he says, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper, underline that first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. So here's what Paul is saying. You're not eating the Lord's Supper, you're eating your own supper. The, the idea is if you come together as a church and you're eating it all, and that means somebody's going without, don't attach Jesus to that. That's not the Lord's Supper. That's not how Jesus would do it, so don't attach him to that. So that's what you're doing, but this is the number two, the purpose of the Lord's table. Verse 23, Paul says, for I received from the Lord. Now, now it's interesting as he, as he says this, but 1 Corinthians is, is uh, regarded as being written before any of the Gospels. So Paul's not reading this from another Gospel and bringing that to us and writing this down. This is something that he's received from the Lord, which would also later on be re, uh, recorded in other Gospels. Verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, and I want you to underline that word thanks again, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Underline, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. And then once again, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So um, when he does this, here's one of the things that I would want to differentiate. First of all, go ahead and write this down. We would hold that the bread and the cup are symbols. They're just symbols. I know many of you come from a, a tradition, a church tradition that holds that when you take the bread and the cup, that it literally becomes the body and the blood of Christ. We, we would have a very different view. And the reason for that, when Jesus is there in front of the disciples, he holds up the bread and he says, okay, guys, this is my body. Now his body's right there. So they realize that he's just using this as a symbol, something that he's, he's illustrating. And, and so in, in the same way, if... Um, you and I were to get into a conversation and somehow I weave it around to my children and uh, we start talking about you know, where they are and how they've grown. And I go, well, would you like to see a picture of my child? And you say, yes. And so I reach into my wallet and I pull out one of my wallet size photos of my, <laughs> my Abigail when she was six months old. She's 15 now. Yes, that's the, the appropriate response. <laughs> And I say, I say, this is my Abigail. You know, Abigail means the joy of her father, and she's certainly the joy of her heavenly father, but certainly my joy too. And uh, she just, you know, just, just love her so much. And we continue the conversation, and then I put the picture away, and we go our merry way. You hop in the car today, you're driving home, and the person next to you says, did you hear what Pastor Dan said? So well, what did he say? He said, that was his Abigail. You know, he, that was his Abigail. And you say, well, no. He held up a picture. We, we all understood that it was a picture. No, no, no. He said that was his Abigail. His Abigail is a piece of paper and some photosynthetic chemicals. Well, no, I, I think we all got that he was, that was more uh, a picture of who we went in. No, he said, this is my Abigail. You know, so uh, we would say, well, okay, but we think that that is more of a, of a metaphor. So it's the same thing. It's the same thing when we, we look at the Lord. When, uh, Jesus says, 
I am the door, we don't naturally think that he's made of wood. We just, we just, we get that. He's the door. It's a, it's a, it's an illustration. Make sense? Okay. Uh, Verse 26, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So notice this is for as often as you eat this. And so write this down. He doesn't tell us how often. In the Bible, there is no biblical distance between the times that you take the Lord's Supper. And uh, so, so some churches do it once a year. Some do quarterly. Some churches just have communion taken in their small groups because it really is something for believers, and, and so they, they do it that way. So there, there's, no, there's nothing that says you have to do it this, this amount of time or, or anything like that. And, and then also in this, we see that the purpose is remembering, not salvation. Go ahead and write that down. In verse 24, he says, do this in remembrance of me. I had you underline that. Verse 25, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And there are some who teach that unless you take communion, you cannot be saved. You cannot, cannot go to heaven. Nowhere in your Bible does communion ever get attached to you being saved. Nowhere in your Bible does it say you take communion to be saved. You take communion because you are saved, which is why we remember what it is that he has done. So, so I just, I put that out there. Um, the next thing that I, I would want to highlight that, that many times we forget is that communion is intended to be a celebration. Write that down. It's a celebration. I had you underline the word thanks a few times as we traveled through. There in your outline, I've put verse 24. It says, when he had given thanks. And uh, you see the Greek word there, I, uh, Eucharist, and you have the uo on the end, uh, from where we get our English word, Eucharist, Eucharist. And uh, Eucharist just means to be thankful. I put there on your outline, thanks, Eucharist, well, uh, probably butchering the pronunciation of that, it means to be grateful, to feel thankful, to give thanks. A- and so when we take communion, it is a celebration of giving thanks. And some churches call it the Eucharist because they understand that this was given uh, as a celebration by which we give thanks. The Corinthians had embraced the whole concept of celebration. The problem is they went too far. Now, last week when we were traveling through, we found that they had embraced the Paul's teaching where he says, you know, in Christ there's neither male nor female, we're one in Christ. They had embraced that, but then they went too far. Here, they embrace the celebration, take just a tad too far. So I put that out there for your consideration. So what are we celebrating? Well, write this down. Not the pain of the Savior, but the gain of the believer. You see, like the Passover that we looked, that we looked at, the people were saved because they accepted. You know, the lamb died and they accepted the blood covering. There was nothing that they brought to the table had nothing to do with their goodness. They were saved because they accepted that covering on their door. And if you're here today and uh, you've never come to the place where you've said, I I want this relationship with Jesus, just know this. It has nothing to do with you being good. Hopefully when Jesus steps in your life, it will help you be good, but you're not saved because you're good. You're saved because of what he has done. You and I don't bring a whole lot to the table. 
when I say whole lot, I'm exaggerating. We bring nothing. We, bring our, we, we don't even bring ourselves, okay? So it's a, but we're, we move on. So like the Passover, they were saved because of what God did. And so you have that, accepting that, that blood covering. Now, here in this new covenant, it's his body, it's his blood that we receive. We receive that. So when we blow it, and we're all going to blow it at some point, he gives us verse 26. Verse 26, it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we proclaim the Lord's death, what we are proclaiming is what he did, what he did for us. And we proclaim it until he comes back for us. And, and, and the reason being is that communion is all about what he did. It has nothing to do with what we've done. So hopefully that, that makes sense. Which leads us to the third point, which would be the preparation for the Lord's Supper. And in verse 27, it says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, however your Bible says it, some of your Bibles will say unworthily, but most of your Bibles will say in an unworthy manner. You want to go ahead and underline that. Shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Here's where we would differ from certain traditions and how they teach this. We're going to keep everything within the context of what we've been talking about today and, and see if this, this makes sense. There in, on your outline, verse 27, again, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, write this down. Not saying that they are unworthy, but they are taking in an unworthy manner. And you want to write that down. They were taking communion in an unworthy manner. So what is unworthy? Well, in our context, uh, they are selfish, taking their own food first. Uh, They're drinking too much of the communion wine. They're showing up, there's factions, there's heresies. And, And again, he's not saying that you are unworthy, but you're doing this in an unworthy way. This is not how you are to take communion. Communion, again, has nothing to do with your worthiness. You don't take communion because you're worthy. It's about they were taking it in an unworthy way. When I say that it has nothing to do with our worthiness, that's the reason when we sing songs, they they have lyrics like, worthy is the lamb. But we don't typically sing songs that say, worthy are the sheep. It's worthy is the lamb. If we are worthy, it's because of what he's done. Again, we don't bring a whole lot to the table. Does that make sense? So taking this in an unworthy manner was taking, they're they're drinking all the wine and they're eating all the bread and they have these divisions and that's just not how you are to take communion. Verse 28, he says, but a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So examine yourselves uh, when we take communion. Have you drank too much of the Welch's? When the plate went by, did you grab a whole handful of the crackers? Did you, did you take more than what was your share so the person next to you did not get a cracker? If you've done that, then that would be in an unworthy manner. And that's literally what he's talking about there. And by the way, um, let, me, let me just say I, I appreciate you as a congregation because 
after 19 years of being here, I can tell you in all the times that we've shared communion, not one time have we ever had to talk to somebody about getting too drunk on the Welches or <laughs> taking more than your fair share of the cracker. So I, I commend you as, as your pastor. You've, you've made it easy to pastor here doing that. So now, so here's what we're doing. We are celebrating in communion what it is that he did. We are not celebrating our worthiness, not our worthiness. Now, when we do this, I always like to say, when we talk about examining ourselves, I, I, I think it's appropriate when we share in communion, and, and if you've been here as we do that, I do like to say, why don't we take a moment, spend alone with the Lord. Let's just ask the Lord, is there any friction in the relationship, anything that we need to deal with? And in that moment, we allow the Lord to speak to us. But we take communion not because we're bringing worthiness to the table. It's about his worthiness, not ours. Verse 29, the plot thickens, and it says, for he who eats and drinks, or he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment, underline the word judgment, to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many, underline many, among you are weak and sick, and a number, underline a number, sleep, a number sleep. So this is the part where people say, well, there it is, you know, you're going to drink, you're going to eat judgment to yourself if you don't do this in, in the right way. I would hold that this is one of the most misunderstood passages in, in the Bible, the New Testament. And for many of us, because we've been taught in a certain tradition, this has really been driven home. So hopefully we can, we can unpack this a little bit. Some teach that if you take communion in an unworthy way, you know, God could kill you. You could die. For, for doing this in an unworthy way. How many of you ever heard anything like that? One hand, one hand waving in the back. Yes, okay. So some of you have heard this. Well, is that true? So um, if I'm eating and drinking in an unworthy manner and it's going to bring judgment, the question that we have to ask is who is uh, bringing the judgment or the judgment from who? Who's giving the judgment? Well, let, let's consider something. One of the, the things that we find in the whole reason that Jesus came to the earth and died on, in, our, in our place, Jesus is teaching in John chapter, six, uh, John chapter 3, uh, verse 18, two verses after John three sixteen, And notice what he says. He who believes in him is not, what's that word? Judged, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So as we look at the Corinthians, they're missing it a little bit, but, um, but um, did they believe in Jesus? And we'd say, well, yeah, they believed in Jesus. They're, they're, they're Christians. Well, then they are not judged. They're not judged by the Lord. So Jesus isn't judging them. Jesus loves them. And uh, he sees some things going on, but he's not judging them. Uh, so how does this work? Let's say, uh, the best way I can describe this, let's say I'm affluent and I show up early. I have, I have the food and I have the wine. And uh, I pull out my big 32-ounce Big Gulp wine cup. And so I say, fill her up. And so I'm sipping and I'm munching, sipping and munching. A few hours go by, people are starting to arrive. And by the time that they arrive, um, I've eaten all the food, and now I'm for snickered, or however you'd want to say that. So those who come to the church later, and they have little, they're going to look at me, and they're going to say, 
what are you doing? You've drank all the wine. You, you've eaten all the food. You're, you're drunk here at church. And, and, and at this point, I, I think we'd all agree, I'm going to feel very stupid by my behavior, especially as I'm looking at all the hungry people around me. And uh, so, so that would be, so what's taking place is the people are judging me. And as they judge me, go ahead and write this down. The judgment comes from other church members. And I'll show you why in just a minute, why this appears to be the case. Other church members. Then you come to verse 30. Now, verse 30 is the part that gets many people. He says, for this reason, many, many among you are. Now, as as we we get into this, how many of you have ever heard in uh, Matthew chapter 7, it says something like, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord. But it says, many will say. Well, that word many can also be translated as mostly. So more, more than half, you might say. Many will say. This, this word, many, is the same word. It means mostly, mostly. So we come to church, it says there in verse 30, for this reason, many, or most of you, we might say, among you are weak and sick and a number asleep. Now, the word there, weak, we translate it into English rightfully as weak. You could also translate that word weak as wobbly. You ever, not that you've experienced this, but maybe you know somebody, but they've had a little bit too much and they're a little wobbly. Anybody, does that ring a bell? Anybody, not you, but somebody you know. And so they're a little wobbly and that could be, that's what that word could mean. And then it says, and sick. Not that you've ever experienced this, but you've probably seen somebody off the balcony and it's kind of, move on. And it says, so that's, and then it says, and a number sleep, a number sleep. Now, sleep could mean that they are passed out. Go ahead and write that down. This could just be what it means. And here's why. The word in the original language just means sleep, means sleeping. Uh, by implication, repose, uh, taking of rest. You know, the idea is they're, they're probably just passed out. Now, can it mean that they're dead? Yes, and, and sometimes that happens. But most of the time when that is taken, when somebody says somebody is asleep and they're actually dead, it's defined for us. Remember the, the great story, Lazarus has died, and so they send the news to Jesus, and Jesus tells the disciples, we've got to go see Lazarus. Lazarus is asleep. And the disciples say, well, if he's asleep, he's going to recover. We don't need to go. And Jesus says, Lazarus is dead. And he defines it for us. And so most of the time, when it means dead, it's going to be defined for us so that we know that. But here, in the context, they are getting drunk at church and getting drunk at church, others are showing up, nothing is left, and uh, the idea is you're taking communion in a way that perverts what communion is all about. So verse 31, it says, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. The idea is if I thought through how I was behaving, the congregation wouldn't be staring at me as, as though I'm some kind of, some kind of idiot, you might say. So now here's where it begins to come together for me. By the way, did, did, did that make sense as far as the... Okay, so, so tuck that away. We come to verse 32, and this is where it begins to come together. Verse 32, but when we are judged, and I want you to underline that word judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. Underline disciplined by the Lord. So that we will not be condemned along with the world. Notice he says when we are judged... We are disciplined by the Lord. I would suggest when we are judged by the rest of the church, God uses that as discipline in our lives. The word discipline there, 
there in your outline from the original language just means to train up a child, to educate, uh, to bring discipline, means to, inst- you can translate it as instruct, learn, or teach. So discipline here means to train up like a child. So you have a children, you're trying to grow them up and you're doing things in their life. Sometimes you let them fall down, you let them bear the consequences of what they've done so that they learn from those things and then hopefully they won't, they won't do that again. So there you are, you've had your too much of the communion wine and you're drunk and the rest of the congregation is now judging you. What are you doing? You're drinking all this. There's nothing for anybody else. And God says, they are judging you and I am using that as discipline in your life so that next week when you guys get together, you don't do that again. I'm allowing them to look at you as though you're strange so that you don't do that again. And uh, if, if it meant that he would kill you because you took this the wrong way, then it's very hard for us to conclude that he's disciplining us, growing us up in him. Because when you're, you know, you're dead, it kind of ends the whole growing up discipline thing. You're just kind of dead. That makes sense? Okay. So, so let, me, let me say it like this. How, how, would, how would judgment be God's discipline? We live here in Jupiter. This is a beach town. And let's say it's a sunny day. Not today, but another day. And so you're a guy and you say, after church, I'm going to go to the beach. So you, you put on your t-shirt, you put on your flip-flops, you put on your Speedo, and you come to church. <laughs> you walk in after the second song, you come swishing down the aisle, and you sit down, and you happen to notice as you walk in, all eyes are on you. And people are looking, by the way, this has never happened, thank you, Jesus, but, but all eyes... <laughs> We have had some weird things, but not that. And don't do this next week. So, so everybody's looking at you, and you feel that awkward feeling like you're really doing something that's inappropriate. Everybody, and so that would be the judgment coming from the church. Like you're really doing something out of line. God uses that as discipline to grow you up, and you, you hear that still small voice saying, what you've done is you've taken casual, and you've moved to inappropriate. That awkward feeling, that judgment that comes from all eyes being on you, next week you're not going to show up in a speedo, is the idea. So God uses that to grow you up. That makes sense? Good. Now, again, no speedos next week. So, no points to prove. So, Paul then concludes here with the remedy. And, and if being asleep meant dead, you would think that the remedy would be uh, a little stronger a little stronger. So notice what he says. Paul's concluding instruction, verse 33. He says, but when, uh, actually, where am I? Verse, verse 33. So then, my brethren, these are believers, my brethren, he never questions that. When you come together, here's the big instructions. When you come together to eat, what's he say? Wait for one another. I was thinking if you're going to kill me if I did this the wrong way, that waiting for one another, it'd be a little bit more profound. Paul's just saying, no, when you come together, don't drink all the communion wine, don't eat all the bread, don't eat all the food. If anyone is hungry, verse 34, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The idea is you don't want the whole church looking at you. Then he just says, and the remaining matters, you know, I'll arrange when I come. We'll talk about the other things when I come. You'd think if it meant that you were going to die, there would be a, a bigger finish there than could you wait for other people before you jump into the communion wine. So that's the idea. Does that make sense? Yes. Good. Um, so I, again, Paul's big close is not could you get yourself more righteous 
before you take communion? Or could you work on your own worthiness? Paul concludes by just saying, could you wait your turn in doing this? Because when you don't, that's really not how we do things, and that's inappropriate. And Because of that, some of you are wobbly, you're throwing up, and you're passed out at church, and that's not a good idea. Which leads to the closing question, can we now have real wine during communion? All right, well, um, let, me, let me just say one thing before we close. In every picture, in every picture, whether it's in the garden, man could not help himself. God steps in on man's behalf. In the picture of the Passover, the way that they were saved, they just had to accept what God was doing. They were saved not because they were good. Communion, we remember what it is that Jesus has done for us. If you have never come to the place where you've invited Jesus into your life. Here's what you need to know. First of all, you don't bring anything to the table. God loves you because you're his. You know, we have in our, in our house a bunch of kids. I don't love them because they're good. I love them because they are mine. I like other people's kids, but I, like, I love my kids. They're not always good. And, and I love them because they're mine. When you and I come to Jesus, we have to realize that we don't bring anything to the table. We simply accept what it is that he has done for us. When we accept that, he he says it like this. I mean, we're familiar with verses, but one of my favorites is in Revelation chapter 3, where it says that Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. He's literally knocking. All we can do is open up. That's all we can do. And even that, he gives us the ability to open up. And when we open up ourselves to him, he steps in. The Bible calls it being born again. It's a new life. Something happens. And and when you're born again, things change. And I can tell you that for anyone who has ever opened themselves up and invited Jesus in, who's ever been born again, you've never heard one person say, I really regret that decision. Because when he steps in, things begin to change. And here's what I can tell you. You're still going to mess up. Uh, life is not going to be perfect. You're still going to go through tough times. We live in a very fallen world. The difference is when you mess up, now you run to him, not from him. When you go through the difficult times, you go through it with him, not apart from him. And so as, So as we close today, I'm, I'm just going to pray a prayer of inviting Jesus in, into our life. And if that's you today and you want to invite Jesus in, that's the best decision that you'll ever make. You'll never, ever regret. But don't leave here today. Don't leave this planet without making sure that you've settled that decision. And then after the service, there's going to be some prayer partners standing in the front. They'd love to pray with you to solidify that decision. If nothing else, would you let us know by marking that on the back of your connection card so that we can send some information to you to help you begin your walk with the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we wrap this up today, we're so thankful as we look at this passage, we realize it's not our worthiness, it's your worthiness. And we proclaim what you have done on our behalf until you come back for us. Lord, for those of us who are here today, who, who are for the first time inviting you to step into our lives, we look to you as best we know how 
and we say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me everything I've done, anything that's been a barrier. Step into my life. I open myself up to you. And as best that I know how, as you step in and as you lead me, I'll follow you. And it's that simple. It's that simple. And as you begin to follow him, you allow him to lead you and he will not lead you astray. And no matter where your life is at, whether things are going great or it's a total train wreck, he'll step in and begin to rework the pieces of your life to live out the purpose that he designed you for. And you'll never regret that. Father, I pray that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.